everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm Taylor Rockwell, and today I am still joined by Daryl Grove. However, he's still consumed by his feelings about the rise of Skywalker. To do this introduction, that's not really true. He's in Boston, but I do think he's probably also still thinking about the rise of Skywalker. Uh, so it's up to me to let you know that today we're going to be talking to Stu Holden. Uh, Stu has been on the program before and is obviously a lovely fellow. Uh, he took a good chunk of his day to discuss the current state of the U.S. men's national team, the upcoming January camp, as well as what it's like to come into the national team as a youngster, what it's like to be a part owner of a club in, in Spain, and what it's like to miss time with injury. That's a very useful thing to think about as we talk about some players who've missed a lot of time this season, this year, and what we hope for for the coming year. Uh, as that may have indicated, uh, this is a very wide-ranging conversation that I, I would speak for Daryl and say that we both really, really enjoyed. Hopefully you all will too. And with that in mind... Joining us on the line, we've got Mr. Stu Holden, uh, who, when he isn't talking about soccer, is busy vacationing with the stars. Uh, Stu, are you back from your vacation, or are we still cutting into your relaxation time? <laughs> I am uh, I'm back from vacation. I uh, actually just played pickup soccer this morning to work off some of the, uh, the drinking I did for the last two weeks and played uh, with a bunch of the LA Galaxy and LASC guys. So I can tell you, you know, El Trafico Ooh. does exist in the off-season here in LA as well. <laughs> did, you, did you hold your own? Have you still got it? Yeah, I, I've, I, I said I feel like a Premier League player for the first 15 minutes, and then I feel like a conference <laughs> player for the last, uh, the last 45. <laughs> See, that's why, that's why your uh, approach when we were in Orlando is the smart one. You wait for everyone to play indoor soccer for like half an hour, 45 minutes, then you show up, then you're the one with the fresh legs, and you torch everybody. I'm sure that's the only reason why you were able to shred a bunch of amateur exactly. soccer players. That's well, the only I, reason. I, see, I feel like may- maybe you're redefining my role now as like the uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, uh, Solskjaer <laughs> super sub. Like I can come on for the last 20 minutes and just give you what I've got and, and hope my <laughs> knees hold up. <laughs> All right, well, we will use you in a super sub capacity, but we also wanted to have you on the show uh, because we wanted to you to sort of help us make sense of the national team right now, help us make sense of the first year under Greg Berhalter. Uh, we had this question, I believe, last week when we were doing listener questions, so I wanted to ask you, what are some things that you liked about the first year under Greg Berhalter? What are some things you did not enjoy about the first year under Greg Berhalter? Um, well, we're going to have to try and make sense of this. Okay. That's, that's a, a pretty big task, isn't it? Yeah, a um, little bit, a little bit. It's really based on, you know, I, I, I go through such highs and lows with this team right now. And, uh, you know, the, the gold cup, uh, I would say last year, I started to see some of the signs of improvement from this team against, you know, a, a, in a real competition, getting to the final for the first 45 minutes, I would say looking good against Mexico in that final uh, and then, you know, losing that game was really disappointing. And then what followed from that was even more disappointing for me because I didn't really feel like the team improved from there. And you thought you would see, okay, the Gold Cup, you know, you, you have a little bit more of the experience. You had, you know, Josie Altador contributing. Michael Bradley, I thought, had a really good tournament. And then, I, you know, I wanted to see who was going to be next, who, who was really going to step up from, from this group and, you know, start to emerge as, as a real contributor um because i think we all know you know jossie's artist yes he 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 does have a role and he can play in, in moments but he, he's not the guy you want to see starting for this team in world cup qualifying and you know can josie altador stay healthy so i think the transition after the gold cup was was disappointing the the, the game against mexico when they were completely played off the field uh in uh, metlife stadium that the the away loss against canada i i was one of the worst performances i've seen from a team in a long time um, yes, they, they, they bounce back, but you'd expect them to, to bounce back and win against Canada at home. So, you know, I, I think this is a much bigger year for Greg Berhalter. Year one, you kind of settle in. 
you, you have your first competitive games. You had a couple of friendlies before that to kind of get your bearings. I would say the positives that I've seen from Greg is, is the way he has approached the job. He, he's taken it very seriously. He has uh, tried to, uh, you know, instill that pride, you know, of what it means to be a part of the national team. Again, you see a lot of the Americanisms um, back involved around this team, but I wouldn't say that that has yet to be reflected on the field in a way uh, that, that can produce results. And so I, will Greg Berhalter change his, his passing style um, you know, in, into this, this next year, I want to see a team that can play in more than one way that can still pass out of the back against teams where we know we're comfortable in possession. But then when it comes to some of the bigger games, uh, when you're playing against better opposition, can you find a way to mix up that style in a way that also gets the most out of this player pool, which I still don't think Greg uh, has been able to do in his first year. Uh, when you say he's uh, taken the job seriously, I think I know what you mean, but I wanted to get a little more insight on that one. Because I know it's not just that, like, Jurgen Klinsmann was out there just, like, goofing around and not taking it seriously. <laughs> but, like, are there specific things you've seen from Berhalter that you feel like show how dedicated he is, show how focused he is on this team in a way that maybe we haven't quite seen just from him uh, in the media and in games? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, because... Greg is a details guy. He's meticulous. I think we all know that. Um, I, I think to a fault at, at times because I think he he um, you can you can be sure that Greg will have thought of everything and watched back everything, analyzed everything. You know, and when we sat in some of these meetings with him, um, I, I always make sure when I go in for these games that I've watched the previous two games and I've I've rewatched them and rewatched them again because. I, you know, he will, if you will question him on a certain aspect or an element or a phase of the game, whether it's their defensive transition, attacking transition, positioning, passing, possession, like he is dialed into the details, you know, and, and when we were sitting in with him comparing the, the Mexico Gold Cup game to the Mexico friendly, I mean, he was running us through areas in which he felt that they had improved areas in which they'd gotten Mexico into the red zone and that they were still fitter, you know, how many passes they had in certain areas. Um, but, but at the end of the day, um, you know, so I'll, I'll, before I move forward, I'll just talk about, yeah, I think that, you know, Greg is living this every single day. He's in Chicago, he's game planning, he's looking at, you know, different pool players, he's traveling, he's talking to players. Um, and that's what I mean by, Greg Greg realizes how big of a job this is, I believe, and you know he is every bit of him right now is focused on getting this team to the next level and and thinking about the player pool in a way of not what's right now, but what's coming in a year, what's coming two years from now, um, and then how to combine that with with winning results. So I I just think not that Jurgen wasn't serious, I, I wasn't insinuating that. I think mm -hmm. it's just that you know the way that Greg is, has approached this job from day one on the job is understanding just how big this is. Do you think he's concerned, or do you think he even notices the the critique that is coming from fans? Um, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily include myself in that because I feel like I'm I'm sort of in on the project. I think you've been far more positive than most, myself very much included. Right, but there's definitely a lot of negativity towards the U.S. men's national team and towards the coach. And I, I, do you get a sense that he that he absorbs any of that, or does he just try and ignore it? Yeah, I, I think here, here's what I find. I don't know if you guys find the same thing in in media is that you know everybody says they read nothing, but they read everything, and <laughs> while 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 they may be able to separate from some of the noise, I think the 
you know, the communication to them, I, I would say has been apparent by, you know, some of the interviews that Ernie Stewart has done recently. Um, some of the things that Greg Berhalter will mention in his press conferences, some of the things that will trigger him questions to him in press conference is either about style of play or about this roster or, um, you know, certain elements within a match that he strongly disagrees with. And it's almost as if once that's bro- brought up, he just like, he just goes off on one. And that, that shows me that he is, he is aware. They are very defensive of what they're doing. I, I would say it's a really tough job for them. Um, and, and, you know, if, if Daryl, if you've been more positive than uh, perhaps Taylor has, I, I think you're probably siding with them on the fact of, the longer term view of this. And I had a really long conversation with Ernie Stewart about this of, you know, how do you not panic in the short term? How do you not listen to the noise? How do you block that out? And how do you truly believe in your plan and your vision for this team while others may not? Because I would say what I see on the field from this U.S. team week in, week out, or in monthly, whenever they play, is not enough to convince me that this team will be successful in two or three years. But I'm not seeing all the single, you know, I'm not seeing the everyday training that these guys are seeing. I'm not watching the 17s, the 23s, every single training that they are. And perhaps they know something that they don't. It is their job that's on the line after all, because I still think that to get the most out of this pool, um, it's not in the way that we're playing right now. And I know we haven't still had, you know, Tyler Adams and McKinney and, and these guys all on the same field at the same time. Sort of, sort of the same question Daryl asked about Burhalter, but this time about Ernie Stewart. Uh, in your conversation with him, do you get a sense that he is taking some of the reaction to the way things have gone, especially with the lack of youth coaches, uh, with some of the questions about the upcoming CEO and who that could end up being? Do you feel like that is being taken seriously, or do you think it's more of a little bit like fans are kind of overreacting? It's not that big of a deal from him. Um, you know, I haven't had the opportunity in uh, recent weeks to talk to Ernie Stewart about, mm-hmm. you know, any any of the, uh, you know, the, the the coaching feedback that they've gotten in this and the Chicago, um, you know, moving to Chicago and everybody being in one place. Uh, and, and I will say again, Ernie was one of those ones when we sat down in some of these conversations with him ahead of games about, you know, he he. He pretends or or claims to be uh, unaware of a lot of the, the noise around certain stuff. And and look, I, I agree with with that approach to an extent because I, I do feel at times we have we uh, we pander to the uh, the social media vacuum and perhaps isn't an entire reflection of um, the the wider perception or opinion uh, around a team or around a program. But at the same time, when when the when the feedback is as strongly tilted in one direction, um, you need to take it seriously and you need to listen. You need to be able to, to listen to that and still to make an educated decision off of what you know and, and the way that you work. And um, I would say that uh, that would be something I'd be interested in how U.S. soccer and Ernie Stewart specifically from U.S. soccer house on down to uh, the national teams as well as are they more reactive or do they stick true to the plan or are they able to perhaps uh, adjust that pa- plan accordingly to, you know, to maximize results? And I, I think that type of hubris, uh, we'll, we'll see if that lasts across 2019. And perhaps in 2019, if you can just adjust that a little bit from you know, the on-field perspective and the off-the-field perspective and start to shift this, uh, this perception of this organization as a whole heading into one of the biggest years uh, U.S. soccer has had in recent history and trying to get this program back on course and qualifying for the World Cup.
I'm, so, I'm assuming you mean 2020. You've done the classic January mistake. <laughs> oh, man, I did, yeah. I got a case of the Januaries here. Uh, yeah, 2020 and 2021. There we go. <laughs> uh, Daryl the Stickler. Uh, he, he's good on his dates. Um, we do want to talk about 2020, about maybe more optimistic things. Sadly, I do want to ask you sort of one more bummer of a question. You mentioned Josie Altador earlier, like hasn't really been able to stay healthy. You obviously uh, had injury issues in your career. Like from a personal, like emotional standpoint, like how difficult is that mentally for a player, a professional player like that, when you're sort of keep missing, you keep being unavailable? It, like what role does that take? What what sort of toll does that take on you just in your sort of day-to-day life if you're never feeling fully healthy, if you can't end up representing the national team as much as you would like? Yeah, I, th- I think it's um, it can't be understated. And, and for someone like Josie specifically, so, you know, a lot of mine were – major uh injuries as far as you know i i had four acls i had a you know the broken knee um and they were all kind of came with a you know a designated time stamp of okay six months for this nine months for this year out for this um i, I did experience with the, the cartilage on my left knee a, a significant period where i didn't know if i would ever get back and and i think when, when I look at someone like Josie and, and muscle injuries that continue, you know, that are reoccurring and they, they get longer or when you think you're healthy, another thing pops up or it's an ankle or it's something else. It's incredibly disheartening. And you, you start to question everything that you do. I mean, uh, my, my wife can tell you, we'd be walking the streets of, you know, Manchester. And the, the second I would feel you know, the slightest bit of fluid in my knee, you know, I, I would do this knee swipe test and it was almost like instantly I just said, I would shut down. I said, we need to go home. I need to get on the ice machine. What did I do today? Did I, you know, was it something I ate? Was it too much work? How much did I do? Did I not sleep well enough? Like you, everything you do on a daily basis is, is geared to getting yourself back on healthy on the field because that, that's what makes you happy. That's your job. I mean, that, that, that's what gives you life. And when I had that ripped away from me continuously and would do the work for six months, for example, after my first ACL, get back on the field. Uh, I came back way too early in hindsight, but I, I was, I felt healthy. I looked good. I passed all the tests. I got clearance from all the doctors. And then the 22nd minute in my first reserve game back, I tear my ACL again. You know, th- th- those were the moments where you, you start to question, why are you doing this? Do you have enough heart? Do you have enough desire to go one more time? Can you pick yourself up off the floor? Um, you, you get past some of that initial disappointment. You start working again. You start to, you know, to build, to see progress. But for, for someone like Josie, as, as he, you know, get, gets older in his career, um, you know, maybe we see something from him if he can't stay healthy at the club level, if he gives up international play, as much as that would be tough and as much as I'm sure he loves – playing for the national team, uh, you get paid more from your club team. And that's where, you know, it's going to prolong your career. And that's what, you know, if you've represented the United States in a number of World Cups and, you know, done all of that, you start to question, okay, how can I keep myself uh, healthy and longer and prolong my career and play this game as long as I possibly can? And, you know, as a U.S. fan, I'm sure we all hope that Josie can stay healthy because I've said it before, I believe he's the best uh, striker in this pool when when he's at a hundred percent, but we haven't seen a hundred percent Josie in a long time now. So, with everything you just mentioned, does that does that make sense as the rationale for why there's no Josie Altador in the January camp? Yeah, I, I, I um, 
you know, I, I would guess that's part of it. I'm, I'm, I don't know off the top of my head. Are Toronto FC in the CONCACAF Champions League or any of that? I wish I wish we knew. <laughs> uh, if you could just see the the frightened stare from me to Daryl, who then frantically looked at his iPad, uh, we'll we'll know we'll know for you momentarily. I, I, I don't follow them. the Canadian Championship. Yeah. I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, I feel like they got in, so maybe that's why he's not in and, and he's a part of that, but I'll have to look. <laughs> right, well, while Daryl looks that up, which he is doing right now, uh, I wanted to ask about your approach to sort of covering the January camp. Uh, they they feel a bit like the like conversations were like that are currently being had about the FA Cup uh, seem to apply to the January camp as well. Like it's important, but it's not as important as like a full international camp. It's useful, but your team probably aren't playing their full team. You're not playing an opponent who's playing their full team. So it can be difficult to have kind of takeaways from the January camp, which is why I'm going to ask you, well, what do you think we can learn from this upcoming camp? Or what are some things you're going to be kind of paying particular attention to? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to see uh, some of the younger players, again, that haven't had many, much experience with, uh, with this group and, and with Greg Berhalter. I, I really like the look of a guy like um, uh, Brendan Aronson from mm-hmm. the Philadelphia Union. Uh, you know, I've been impressed by him. He had a great last season. He's been in with the national team. He didn't get a game. Um, what, what does it look like after he's had three or four weeks up close and personal with Greg Berhalter to, you know, to build his physique, to build his fitness, to you know, uh, continue to improve learning tactically the game? Uh, so you know, I'm excited to see what, what he can do. There's another guy, uh, I think, who had a really good 2019 in Jackson Yule, who I think has um, – surpassed Will Trapp in the pecking order for, you know, the number six position and probably the number two right now to, to Michael Bradley in there. Uh, you know, does he continue to develop in, in that position? And, you know, then you have a nice mix, I think, in this camp of, of some young defenders. Uh, you know, a guy like Chase Gasper gets his first call up um, from Minnesota United and, you know, had a good last season as a left back, a position that we still struggle to find somebody that can continually play there and you know I, I think beyond that it's a it's a lot of guys that we kind of know you know the Jordan Morris's Jossie Zardes Ariolas Jonathan Lewis's um, but I, I would say that Greg Berhalter this year I, I'm interested to see from a from covering it as what what does he do with this team because year year one with him in the January camp was all about learning the system and you know guys had to learn it guys had to understand it and we saw the course over the course of 2019 the guys that knew the system and had been in the january camp and could perform and could execute that system got the majority of the minutes um you know guys guys like will trap guys like Ariola, um even like sebastian legit for example christian roldan i think is a perfect example of a guy that benefited from being in these january camps so, you know, who comes out of this camp as one of Greg's new guys that he could add to the core group? Because, you know, if you look at that group, it's not the strongest, but I still think you could get one or two names that come out of there that can now be regular contributors. And I think that's what we all look for uh, every single year as, as part of these January camps. And not that you're going to learn that in, in a one game against uh, Costa Rica at the end of it. Stuart, I don't, I don't know if you can tell us or not, but will you be on the broadcast for the US-Costa Rica game? I was struggling to find details of uh, whether sort of Fox Soccer or ESPN had the game. Yeah, no, e- ESPN had that one. So uh, I'll probably, well, I was hoping to get down to uh, training camp, but uh, not in Qatar uh, and now not in Florida. <laughs> but, uh, but now I will be hoping to go um, to, to their camp when they come to LA before that game and uh, you know, I actually kind of enjoy these moments because when, when they're in Los Angeles, I can go down and U.S. soccer is normally pretty good about letting me go out and, 
you know, watch the majority of the session and yeah. then, you know, watching the game sometimes as a, as a fan and not calling it, uh, you, you get to absorb it in a, in a different kind of way and maybe see things that, that you don't when you're actually calling the game and you're so focused on, you know, all the stuff that you're looking at during that match. Much more still to come from our conversation with Mr. Stu Holden, and Stuart Holden, I should say, give him his proper billing. Uh, but first, I wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Policy Genius. It's January 2020, not 2019, but 2020. The year 2020 shows up a lot in science fiction. A lot of people predicted that by now we'd be teleporting to work or living on Mars, and a lot of those predictions were wrong. The truth is we'll always get the future wrong, which is why we need to get life insurance right. That's where Policy Genius can help. I mean, it is still pretty impressive that like we're conducting this interview with a person who I believe is in California over the magic of the interwebs and then it goes out via I forget how it works exactly I think it's a series of tubes that somehow make this audio play in your ears but it is a pretty magical world but uh, Policy Genius makes that world that much brighter because they make finding the right life insurance a breeze it could be a very scary thing it could be an intimidating thing they make it very easy in minutes you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price you could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, their team handles all the paperwork, the red tape, so you can just focus on the, the happier things in life, the less serious things, and then Policy Genius can focus on all the other stuff for you. So don't be discouraged. Get life insurance. It takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at PolicyGenius.com. With Policy Genius, we may get the future wrong, but at least they'll always get life insurance right. So thank you to Policy Genius for that and for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to Stu Holden talking all things U.S. men's national team. I mean, can you tell us a bit about what goes on in a January camp? And you, you've probably got the experience of going and taking a look yourself. I also know you have the experience of being in a January camp in, I want to say, 2009. Um, so like, how does it differ from, say, um, a regular national team call-up? Yeah, I, I, I actually think, so 2009 was probably my best season in Major League Soccer. And I, and I don't think that that was a coincidence that it was coming off of a January camp because uh you know that was with Bob Bradley it was uh it was very intense it was uh you know a double sessions uh, it was a lot of on the field tactics it was a lot of you know fitness and gym and you know you really do feel though if you're a part of those camps that you come in for MLS preseason and you're you're already so much further ahead than everybody else Right. And, uh, you know, I, I used to love um, January camp with Bob at the, the time that I was in it. I was, I think, one other one before the Olympics in, in 2007, maybe, where it was kind of a mixed camp. But, you know, Bob, uh, I, I've, I've said, is probably the best coach that I've ever had because of how much I learned from him and, and just how his attention to detail and, you know, your, your body positioning, how you're taking a ball. Is it, are you taking it with your right foot? Are you opening your body? What passes are you looking for? Uh, it's, it's a lot of time, you know, each coach manages it a different way. I think, you know, going back to the Bruce arena days, you know, I've heard stories of, it was, it, it wasn't many double days. It was afternoons in Manhattan beach. It was, you know, coffee by the sea dinners by night. Um, you know, a little bit more relaxed vibe, Bob and Peter Novak kind of brought it back the other way. It was a little bit more serious, a little bit more intense, um, less relaxing involved a couple you know, a couple of days off here and there, but for the most part, you were there to work. It was, you know, at the end of it, you were exhausted, but you were also, um, you had been worked in a good way. I think Jurgen Klinsmann tried to find a mix of that. Um, I remember being a part of one, uh, it was actually the, the, probably the last year of my career, I think 2016, when I officially retired, even though I'd probably 
hadn't played a game in two, three years at that point, but you know, he was trying to find ways for guys to, you know, get away to, to get away from the game, um, afternoons off, mornings off, sometimes different days off, but then still doing double sessions. So it's up to each coach. I think it's just to really find the right balance of, of, of working, improving, learning, but then also, you know, not burning guys out where they're coming in every day and thinking, Oh, it's another meeting. Here's another meeting because four weeks of that is it's really tough on a player without any types of breaks. And with really only one game at the end of it is kind of your carrot, as opposed to MLS, you've got a game every weekend and you know, you're, you're continually just to focus on that when it's only one game and it's a lot of training, man, it gets, it gets tough after a while to, to keep your focus. You start to lose it and you just want to do something else for one afternoon. That's not, not working on soccer. I mean, I'm going to assume that the Greg Berhalter camps are more Bob Bradley than Bruce Arena. They look pretty, I imagine they're pretty serious and intense and detailed and focused. We've seen that image multiple times of all the guys gathered around the, mm. the, the flip chart with yeah. the, he's got in the middle. Um, do you get a, a sense that when you've seen these January camps that the guys are still absorbing that information from Greg Berhalter? I always wonder at what point are they, are they getting sick of hearing the same things or how engaged <laughs> are they? Yeah, I think that's the challenge for, for Greg and his staff is how do you continue to stimulate? How do you continue to motivate? How do you continue to educate the guys on something that they've now been uh, accustomed to working on over the past you know year and a half? And, and how do you keep, uh, or year rather, and, and then how do you keep, you know, integrate the new guys and teach them? So is it, you know, one-on-one -on -one sessions with them separately, as opposed to just continuing to go over the same points and, as Greg calls them, the principles of play and, um, you know, how they press, where they press, when they pass, when to, you know, between the lines, who's going here, you know, all the stuff that you see a lot of, of Greg working on. And, and like you said, that, that image of all the guys crowded around the board. I mean, that's a very, you know, top level coaching technique is, you know, making sure guys are aware, which I know they are. I mean, I've, I've watched Greg's staff set up sessions where it's, you know, the bibs are perfectly laid out. The balls are in a perfect um, you know, lineup of rows of four and the cones, there's not one cone out of place. And it's, it's very much like, you know, when you come out there that you are coming to work, everything is timed down to water breaks and it, wow. it's efficient. And, you know, there, there's no uh, room for imagination in there as far as like, okay, maybe what's next. And I, I think that's part of Greg's coaching technique. And um, it, we'll, we'll see how, how that continues to develop and work for him in 2020. I want to, uh, this year. Okay. So this year I got it right. This time, Daryl. Um, uh, I, I do want to ask Greg when I see him next, maybe at the end of this camp of, of how he has changed in a year as a coach of a national team, as opposed to being yeah. a club coach where, you know, one of the things that we said to him at the beginning of his tenure was, you know, how are you going to handle this? Not seeing the team for longer stretches. So for Greg, really, this is his bread and butter now four weeks straight with a team coaching them in a club type environment. And, and trying to maximize his time in a way with, with probably a group that we all know is, is not going to be his regular group. So there are five teenagers in this latest roster. There's a couple 20-year-olds in there, a lot, a lot of newbies, uh, a lot of debutantes potentially. What was your experience like when you were a youngster coming into U.S. national team camp? Is, is the vibe sort of like, congrats, you made it? Or is it a bit more like, okay, now, now what? Now prove you belong. Are you singing songs? Are you being hazed? Are you carrying gear? Or is it a more welcoming uh, atmosphere overall? Yeah, actually, it's it's important to, in those January camps to have some veterans that can hold some of these rookie uh, traditions going because you either have to, you know, sing a song or, or tell a joke. And, right. um, 
you know, I, I think I did both just because I requested to do both in different camps. But, um, you know, it, it's... Um, I mean, what was the, the song, camp, first of all? One of them, uh, bye, 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 obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had my highlights at the time. It felt, it felt fitting to be in a boy band. Um, and then, you know, the part about the January camp is it's a little less, less intimidating because I think my first January camp, there wouldn't be... Clint Dempsey's and Landon Donovan's and Gooch and Bocanegra's and Tim Howard. So you kind of like get to dip your toe into the water a little bit and feel it out before you, you, you stepped into your first senior camp where, no, I remember my first call up was, um, I was in an Olympic camp in 2007, us were playing Mexico in Houston and we were in a camp in Florida. The full team was in Houston, Peter Novak, you know, had, had kind of identified me as one of the standout performers of that camp after two weeks. And he called Bob and said, Bob, I think you need to bring Stu in to the full team. And, you know, Houston's his hometown. So I get the, the you know, Peter Novak comes up to me at lunch and says, you're flying to Houston this afternoon and you're going to going in with the senior team. I mean, I, I was terrified. I, I walked in on, you know, day one of training and, and sat down at lunch next to, you know, Tim and Clint and Landon. And I just remember keeping my mouth shut and just wanting to learn and absorb and try to do what I could in practice and tried to show a little bit to Bob of my personality but at the same time, you know, showing kind of the hunger and the humbleness. Um, and, and I, I think what, when I look at some of these kids now, I say to them, I'm like, ah, you know, why do they look so timid? Why don't they, you know, show who they are? Why don't they like talk confidently? And then I remember myself at that days. And I remember that it's not that easy just to walk in and, to, to kind of exert yourself. You have to, you have to earn that, I think with the national team. And it's a nice way in a January camp to, you know, kind of do a little bit here and there and you earn respect ultimately at the end of the day by the way you perform and the way you play. And it's a lot easier to, to join into that when you've done that. And so uh, one, one last funny story from uh, the 2009 January camp, we did the, the dreaded um, fitness test, the, mm-hmm. uh, the beef test. Yikes. And I was notorious for my, my, I think my ability to run around the field without stopping and, that year I, uh, I won the beep test and, uh, you know, the first training session after that, Bob Bradley like pulls everybody around and I'm, I'm waiting to kind of get a congratulations on like winning the beep test. And his first statement was, um, guys, so it, it's not about who can run the most. It's about who can run the smartest. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, so pretty much you just <laughs> on everything that I just did in the beep <laughs> test. And now like you're saying that it doesn't matter how far we run if we run smart. And then he pulled me aside and he's like, I'm glad you won the beep test, but I've been willing to tell you that you do, you waste yourself too much in the field and you need to learn how to stop running so much in certain moments so you can be fresher at the end of the game. And I was like, Oh, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) Did you actually, did you actually change what you do based on that? I did. Yeah. It was one of, it was probably one of the best pieces of advice uh, and simplest piece of advice as I ever got in my career. Uh, and it was something John Spencer worked a lot on me with as well, because I, as a center midfielder used to run and it's amazing. I was learning this at, you know, 20, 21 years old, but I used to just basically run wherever I, I could to try and get the ball instead of learning and, and being more aware and more connected to my other three midfielders of, you know, times just to basically stop and back up four yards and, you know, allow a guy to play a 15-yard ball instead of, you know, getting a five-yard pass for him where, you know, I'm, I'm losing space and I'm, I'm taking space away from myself. And I, I'll never forget that conversation with Bob because we sat, you know, pretty much that next week and we looked at different moments from the, my Dynamo games from the last year of, 
you know, where I could have been, where I was wasting myself when I had a really good example of a moment where I just backed up and waited for the play to develop and then took the balls in more key areas. And I noticed that next year in 2009, when I probably had, I think I had my most goals assists and, you know, was, was part of the MLS best 11 that my, my input went up exponentially just from a little tweak in my game like that. And I still, I think in Houston games, in the middle of the summer when everybody else was tiring, I think I scored the largest percentage of my goals in maybe the last 15 minutes in those games when everybody else was dead and I still had the energy to run in 105 degrees. <laughs> so there you go. So the beep test, the beep test is useful. It seems at least a little bit. Yeah, uh, it is in a way. Yeah. <laughs> you have, you have the out of saying, uh, I don't remember if you want to take it, but you said you won the beep test. Who lost the beep test still? everybody else <laughs> okay okay but there wasn't one person who you remember being out before everybody else you just want to go with everybody uh, I, I don't i All don't right. remember i i don't remember who who the uh the one behind me was i do remember in 2016 with jurgen doing the beep test again when i was still kind of working my way back to trying to maybe give it my you know 16th attempt at a recovery and brandon vincent brandon vincent and mm-hmm. i from stanford were the last two going he had just signed i think with the chicago fire and I remember thinking, I'm going to beat this kid. kid. <clears throat> Excuse me. It still chokes me up, apparently. Uh, because he absolutely he smoked me at the end, and I ended up finishing second, which was you know, kind of a disappointing moment. And also a moment where I was like, okay, man, you're getting a little bit older now. You've lost a step. <laughs> that's, that's a fun realization to get to have. Um, I have one more question for you yeah. about, about the national team. Uh, then we did want to ask you about Mallorca. We don't want to take up too much of your time, though. Uh, but with the national team as a whole, you've watched a lot of games, obviously, just uh, uh, in your sort of broadcasting capacity. But then as a fan, as a person who follows the team, are there any players in the like overall pool who you think maybe get – unfairly maligned or you see some things from them that you maybe don't think other people do, or you just have kind of higher up your estimation than maybe other people might. Um, okay. Let's see. I mean, I, I guess we should start with who are probably the more maligned players. Um, mm-hmm. Michael Bradley is one of them. Uh, I think Jossie's artist takes a lot of stick. Anytime he's, he's in a lineup. I, I think Will Trapp has gotten there recently with some U S soccer fans. Um, I'm trying to think perhaps who, who as a defender is, um, is not high up the list right now as well. Uh, you know, I'll go with Michael Bradley because I think I've been a pretty staunch defender of, of his, um, from the beginning. And I, I played with Michael. I've seen him firsthand. I played against him when he was probably at his best. Um, uh, you know, he was a player that was ahead of me, uh, for, for a number of years with the national team and I, I couldn't quite get in. And then when I felt like I was really going to, you know, get there or get beyond him was when I picked up a number of those injuries. But, and, and I asked myself this a lot because it got easier for me as a broadcaster once, once I was completely retired and I could step away and I could say, I'm a broadcaster now, everything that I do, um, I have to be impartial. I have to be you know, true to the viewer, I, I can't, you know, I can't think back and protect guys or I just have to be, you know, uh, honest about the way that I see it. And, uh, you know, Michael Bradley was one I, I kept asking myself, I'm, are, are you, you know, am I defending this guy to no end? Because uh, am I not seeing things that are other people are seeing? Do I, you know, uh, do I see the mistakes he's making in the same way? Do I, am I, you know, those are the things that continue to go through my head because I always used to get so much crap from people on social media whenever I would say that Michael Bradley and Josie should still be a part of this team. This is right after the World Cup. And still that I say he should still be 
you know, a starter for this group. And I, I just think that, that how smart he is, um, you know, how much he is able to, you know, influence the game without the ball as well of, of positionally organizing, being in the right spots. I think Michael Bradley is a gamer. I think in big moments he has proved that, you know, he can turn it on, that he can he can still do it. Do I think he's lost a step? Yes. But do I still think his half step is uh, or a full step that he's lost is better than anybody else right now that I would trust in a big game for the U.S. men's national team? I, I don't have anybody that I would say that I would want in that lineup um, right now in the formation that Greg is playing and, you know, do, do, does that mean you find somebody to go alongside him? Do you, you compliment him? You don't, you don't protect him by just organizing a system around Michael Bradley because I don't think he's that influential for this team right now. But I do see a better U.S. men's national team when, when Michael Bradley is on the team. And I think he is aware of that. He, he, he doesn't get all the credit when the team performs well, but when they don't perform well, he is number one target for pretty much any U.S. soccer fan. And you either love him or you hate him. So I think he's probably the one of the most – you know, p- polarizing players in that entire squad. What do you think of the critique that a lot of people have, and we have had occasionally, of uh, when the US is defending and when Michael Bradley's defending because he's lost a step? I always feel like he's trying to, he's trying to just like play the angles a little bit more. He gets in that sort of defensive crouch and posture when I feel like a, like a younger, more hungry player like Tyler Adams would just be you know, just charging down the ball and winning the ball. Um, do, do you see that? And do you think that's a fair criticism? Uh, I think it's a really interesting point and discussion because, you know, for example, the the Gold Cup finals one that actually um, comes to me straight away because Michael took a lot of criticism for, I think, the goal that Jonathan DeSanto scores. But in fact, uh, it was Weston McKinney uh, to me that was the player um, that I actually thought on that night struggled probably the most. Um, and Greg, Greg Berhalter talked to us about saying he, he felt it was one of the mistakes that he made giving uh, Weston the captaincy that night because it put too much pressure on him. But um, I think it depends on the style that you want your team to play. Now, Greg, Greg I think, initially started with more of a higher block for his team, and he's, he's kind of transitioned back into almost this mid-passive block, which I'm not really a fan of. And it kind of allows the team to play the first pass or two out of pressure. And then almost like the U.S. are starting to engage like, you know, midway into their half or almost on the top of the center circle. And I just feel the way that we're defending right now, we're so stretched that we're not really getting the pressure, pressure on the ball in any part of the field. And it's too easy to play through us. And I, I noticed that a lot during the Gold Cup. It was really frustrating. I think it was the game against Curacao, perhaps, where, you know, their goalkeeper, Eloy Room, was just, you know, knocking 30-yard balls um, over our wingers that were tucking in, and then our midfielders couldn't get any pressure. And, uh, you know, I saw, I saw the same against Canada. So I, I think Michael, as part of that, if, if you want your midfield being very aggressive, stepping up high, putting pressure, I don't think, you know, he's the guy to, to be a part of that. If you want Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams just, you know, sprinting out, closing down, playing this high-energy, high-tempo system, then I think that works. And then, you know, there, there's moments in a game where you have to understand with a guy like Weston or Tyler that they have to be, you know, a little bit smarter in the way that they're pressing. And, and if you come sprinting out against a guy like Guardado, he's going to take a little half step to the left, fire one into, you know, one of their attacking players who comes in off the wings and then it creates that beautiful goal that Mexico scored with Dos Santos. So uh, 
I, I think it would be hard to just to blanket that and say like, this isn't the best way or, it, you know, Michael in a certain way has changed the way he's defended. I would say though, you don't see less of him like maybe eight years ago with the national team. When I remember Michael being the first one to initiate all of that pressing from midfield and he would step right. up higher, but his, his role is a lot differently now, um, uh, different now under Greg. Um, I can confirm that uh, Michael Bradley, much like Josie Altador, will not be playing in the 2020 uh, CONCACAF Champions League. All right, you've, you've done that research? Montreal okay. Impact I'm are your Canadian that. champions. <laughs> All right, Montreal. All right, uh, Will, we'll talk about oh, a different right. yeah, foreign a team moment. with an M. Let's do that way. Uh, go to the Balearics. Yeah, Stu, Stu's been uh, very generous. Before we let you go, I did want to ask about Mallorca, uh, how you got involved with them and what the latest is with the club. Yeah, I mean, this has been one of the most fun things to have been a part of is for me post-career because, you know, I always dreamed of being a professional soccer player. I never dreamed of being an owner of a, of a soccer team or being involved on that side. And it's something that um, I got the opportunity from through Steve Nash. Steve, uh, Steve and I have become really close friends over the past, you know, five, six years. And uh, we play soccer all the time. We were actually playing together this morning we talk about soccer. We talk about life. Um, the ownership group from the Phoenix Suns called Steve said that they wanted to buy a soccer team in Europe. Um, they uh, wanted to get him involved because of his love for soccer. And also, you know, the, the clout, I think that Steve can bring in and his knowledge and, you know, he's just a very smart and savvy guy. And then Steve called me and said, Hey, you know, these guys are thinking of doing this. They've asked me to be involved. I said, I'd like, um, you know, a couple soccer guys uh, to, to be involved and really bring some expertise from the soccer side. And would you like to and, and invest in the team? And I said, yes, 100%. I want to do that. That sounds like an absolute dream. And it really has been. I mean, we, we took the team over in the second division. We got relegated to the third division after the first year. Um, we, uh, basically, this is maybe one of the areas I was able to influence the most. In fact, of having experience of relegation with Bolton, of knowing that, you know, you have to stay committed and you have to, you know, in in, in many senses, double down on on a on a uh, depreciated asset and just invest in the squad and make sure we get right back up. And we did, and we got back to back promotions. We kept a number of our good players. We've ended up in La Liga somehow, some way, with some luck along the way. Um, you know, we, we've hired some really great staff in Mallorca. We have a fantastic coach in Vicente Moreno is kind of these one, one of these younger up and coming coaches in the Spanish ranks. He's, he's very highly sought after. We signed him to a new contract at the uh, beginning of the season because he earned it. And also because um, it's, it's, we believe in stability and, and continuity. And, you know, on day one of La Liga, we started seven players from the third division. So, not ideal in many ways. And the fact that we would have liked to have strengthened in a way that, you know, our coach would have had more talented players, but we're also limited in the way in which we could invest in the squad based on financial fair play. So uh, we're currently as of today, as of the time we were talking in 2020, uh, we're right <laughs> on the line of relegation. Uh, if, if you offered me the place above relegation at the end of the season, I would bite your hand off and, and pay you for it at this point. But <laughs> Um, we, we are the lowest budget by 30 million in La Liga. Uh, you know, we beat Real Madrid this season, which have a budget, I think, of 650 million. Um, ours is around the, you know, 30, 35 million mark. So, um, you know, that was quite an accomplishment and achievement for us. And uh, it, it's it's been quite the whirlwind. I, I, I don't know what our chances are, our percentage chances. I don't even want to put a percentage of us staying up this season, but 
you know, for me, this was always an opportunity to, to learn. And I've learned the business side of the game, um, you know, the squad management, the personality management, the personnel management, the, you know, the, the basically restructuring of a culture of an entire club. And it, it's, uh, we, I got the chance uh, to go a couple of weeks ago uh, in 2019 to see us play against Barcelona in the camp now. And it was uh, one of the most surreal and, um, life-changing experiences I think I've had, you know, strolling into the director's box at the Camp Nou and sitting uh, front row in the director's box right across from the owners of Barcelona and watching Messi drop a hat-trick on our team. Um, I wish that we'd actually been able to win that game, but, you know, we, we, we didn't do ourselves a total disservice in losing to one of the best teams in the world. And just to kind of see that on that stage and 100,000 people watching our team play in one of the, you know, the most famous football stadiums in the world and, and being there as an owner of a team uh, uh, was, was pretty surreal. And the, the last moment of that was, so we're down two zero and I'm sitting next to Steve and then my wife and this, you know, a contingent of my uh, Mallorca uh, group. And then across the aisle from us was our majority owner and sitting next to the Barcelona president. Well, we're down two zero and we score and we all like jump up and we're like celebrating, giving it like the big yes. And like, you know, Steve and I are like hugging and then we kind of turn around and look and everybody else in the director's box was sitting and it was like golf claps. And <laughs> I kind of look over at our, our, I looked over at our CEO and I was like, are, are we not supposed to like celebrate like that? Cause it was my first time at like, you know, a big, a big, a big club. And, and he was like, no, you're supposed to just like, you know, kind of, it's like a tennis match. You're supposed to just sit there and like, you know, act like you've been there before. And, and, and the actual fact though, I had never been there before yeah. <laughs> and I was celebrating like I had never been there before and I'm not apologizing for it, but by the time we scored the second goal, we were much more muted and kind of aware of our surroundings at that point. <laughs> by the third goal, did you have like a monocle in and everything like that? You just fully adapted to the culture? Well, yeah, there was no third goal for us, unfortunately. Oh, but, never mind um, that. <laughs> <laughs> just, for, just for Barcelona. When, you, uh, um, I think they had five. I was at four that day. Are you, are you ever tempted to um, suggest American players to, to Mallorca? Or even uh, do they ever tap you for your knowledge of like, hey, are there any up-and-coming like U-20 Americans who might be a good fit for Mallorca? Or do you have to sort of bury your soccer patriotism and – just think more sort of purely rationally when you're, when you're have a, an ownership stake in a team. No, I mean, uh, I think for our ownership group, we would love to, to have a, an American player that, that fits um, with our philosophy and, and, and our style of play. And, you know, I'll tell you that, you know, we, we at the uh, beginning of the season, we're looking at Matt Miazga potentially as, as a player. And we'd had some conversations with his representatives, but you know, the, the deal and the loan from, from Chelsea didn't quite fit with, you know, what we were working for and looking for at that time. Cause I felt like he had a pretty strong gold cup and it was a player that, you know, we had talked about and that was available and that Chelsea were looking to loan out. Um, I'm always throwing, you know, some of the uh, players, I, I keep trying to get Pulisic on a free transfer, but that's not quite <laughs> working out. Um, but no, I mean, we, we would love to have uh, a young American player uh we're limited in the amount of foreign players that we can bring in and an american without a european passport would right. be much more difficult to kind of you know to, to secure for us oh miazga um, has that polish but, passport right yeah he has the polish passport which which would um because i think right now we're using two of our three foreign slots uh if i'm not mistaken so 
it, it's just kind of balancing that. And, you know, we have a, we have, um, had a couple guys that, it, you know, have come over for training, like younger American youth internationals. So we're, we're still looking at, at, at things like that down the line. And I would love to have an American player starting for Mallorca, um, for, for us in La Liga. That would, that would be a dream for me. All right. Well, Stu, we, we really appreciate you taking all the time. Uh, we look forward to chatting with you again sometime in the near future. If if not, then maybe we'll get to see you again for an All-Star game in Los Angeles. But for now, good luck to Mallorca. Uh, good luck to you uh, in the yeah, rest down, of your... Down with Celta Vigo. Down with Celta Vigo. And good luck to the start of your 2019 <laughs> yeah. slash 2020, whichever one. Please, please, please root against Espanol and Celta Vigo any chance that you get right now. Um, and uh, pray, pray for us. But uh, guys, I appreciate it. Uh, Daryl, keep on the good fight, man. Hope you're feeling well, and uh, thanks, thanks for having me on, boys. We'll see you, uh, see you guys soon.